0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to War Diplomacy, your favorite and trusted podcast about international affairs and geopolitics. Uh, you recognize my voice. My name is Fabio Almada, and I'm here with Armis, my co-host. And I think today's topic is going to be really, really interesting. It raises significant concerns about uh, what ha- has happened in Russia over the past uh, week. And I think this has sparked a lot of worries about uh, the country falling in the brink of a civil war between the Russian army and the uh, private military company of Wagner. So, Aramis, hello, and can you maybe give us a little insight on what are we
1: delving into today? Hello, Fabio, and uh, hello to our dear listeners. So, yes, um, following hours of standoff, Yevgeny Prigozhin halted his march on Moscow a couple of days ago. Belarus President Alexander Lukashenko claimed to have successfully negotiated a ceasefire, resulting in the dropping of criminal charges against Prigozhin who will now depart for Belarus. The rebellion and its aftermath will undoubtedly have a profound impact on the power struggles within the Russian leadership. It also raises questions about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. In this episode, we aim to delve into various aspects of the situation in Russia. As with all episodes of our podcast, we have divided the discussion into several blocks. So firstly, we will analyze the most recent developments surrounding the rebellion. Secondly, we will shift our focus to the talk about the opposition within Russia, examining whether any significant resistance remains. Through these segments, we hope to provide a comprehensive understanding of the situation unfolding in Russia and shed light on its implications for both domestic politics and international relations.
0: And to help us discuss these uh, exciting and, and interesting questions, we're joined today by our, by our guest, Ivan Klyuchnikov. He's a student of political science, and he's currently at VUB in Brussels. He's a Russian national that has been living outside Russia since the beginning of the war in February 2022. So Ivan, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you feeling?
2: Um, hello, uh, I'm feeling fine, uh, good, ready to share my some ideas about the situation.
0: All right. Well, in that case, I think we can start with the first block and talk about a little bit our analysis on what happened this past week regarding the Wagner Rebellion.
1: So, as I've already mentioned in our introduction, in the first block, in the first section, we will talk about the Russian rebellion that has recently occurred under the lead of um, Yevgeny Prigozhin, So what happened in detail? It was a swift and tumultuous uprising. Prigozhin's forces quickly moved from their camps in Ukraine, where they were initially involved in the Russo-Ukrainian full-scale invasion. They moved to Russia, precisely to Rostov, and from Rostov, Wagner forces advanced towards Moscow. 200 kilometers short of Moscow, the advance came to a halt on Saturday, And the Russian state media reported that the Wagner troops would be returning to Ukraine, while Prigozhin himself would be located to neighboring Belarus. According to what we know so far, the Wagner group will not face any mass prosecutions, which was part of the alleged deal that was brokered to stop the Wagner convoy en route to Moscow. But this does not mean that high-level figures in the military will be unaffected According to the latest news from the Financial Times, for example, Sergei Zulovikin, deputy head of the Joint Forces, has recently been detained. So tensions between the Russian elites are still not resolved. And um, yeah, it will be very interesting to look at this power struggle, the ongoing conflict in Ukraine and the future trajectory of Russian politics. And in this section, we will delve into the details surrounding this rebellion analyze its potential impact on the internal dynamics of Russian politics but before we get into deeper analysis I'd like to I'd like to ask you Ivan what do you think of this rebellion what are the consequences of to me it seems that if prigozhin doesn't pay a heavy price putin's regime is in serious danger how do you see it
2: well let's start uh, from the very beginning when um, sergey shoygu signed a decree on june 10 to uh, convert uh, volunteers to a contract army, which, were, which uh, made Prigozhin very mad. And he started to think about the revolt and uh, his uh, military mutiny. Uh, maybe he tried to find some support among uh, Russian generals, for example, um, Sorovikin, because he used to be a chief operational head of this joint uh, group. So say, he says explicitly why he's doing that, He was doing it for uh, justice, for uh, um, making this clear that
1: Putin is fooled by his generals. This is sort of the official version from Bigoshin saying, I just tried to somehow fix the military, but do you believe in this version?
2: I heard a very interesting uh, perspective on this event by Maxim Shekhovchenko, a Russian journalist and politician. Who said that precaution uh, was used to test Russian elites if they will support any other rebels and, um, like, basically just to uh, bet them and um, uh, if they can give up Putin or not right now? Because, as we know, many of Russian elites uh, were detached from the Kremlin in February last year uh, after the um, notorious summit just after the
1: war uh, broke out. If we assumed that that was the case, wouldn't Putin have to pay a really high price for such actions?
2: Uh, The heavy price? Well, Putin admitted that uh, the Russian government was sponsoring mercenaries uh, all this year. Uh, Around 80 billion rubles were spent on this. Uh, So it's around 1 billion dollars. It's a huge amount of money if we compare with other spendings of Russian government, especially if we tell that uh, Putin was claiming all these years that Prigozhin, um, he never named him Prigozhin, he was using like volunteers, he was using other like um, words to describe this um, private military company. Uh, but uh, he was claiming that uh, government never spent any money on that. Well, in fact, he again lied. And the uh, government indeed spent tons of money to support this proxy uh, army which was used uh, not even uh, in Ukraine but also in Africa. So yeah, uh, Putin's regime uh, is in danger.
0: Well, Ivan, I, I agree with you. I think this is uh, a lot of, a lot to do dealing with politics and how maybe Perugosian was already going to lose his power uh, when uh, Putin agreed to, to take away the Wagner troops when they signed contracts with the military. And I think that's when Maybe he realized that he had to do something for him to uh, to keep that privilege he he enjoyed. So I think that's one part of it. And two, I think that uh, this this whole mess. I I don't even know if it was a, a real attempt of coup d'état. I mean, I think one of the lessons that I want to extract from this is that if you're going to attempt to kill uh, a king, you got to go all the way and finish it. And it really what I'm really questioning right now is the the deal, the deal that Lukashenko uh, sponsored for Putin. I mean. Uh, sure, he's going to move to to Belarus for now, but I am I would not be surprised if he fell from a window in any week uh, from now on. And I agree with you as well. I think that Putin's regime is now in, in its lowest, as it has been for the past 20 years. We are starting to see the cracks um, among the Russian elites. Uh, we thought that maybe a long war was going to profit Russia as they could maybe uh, finance it and they will have the, the equipment, the people. And now we can see that maybe that's not going to be the case. So what I've been reading in the past days is that maybe these Wagner forces, they were not the ones fighting in the front line. So maybe the direct and immediate impact will not be seen right now, but the morale will play there. And then imagine all of the people that all of the pilots did that. I think that nine or 10 helicopters were shot down. I think that's around 30 pilots. So imagine the political capital that Putin is losing right now when people in Russia are starting to sense that the war is there and maybe they are not uh, winning as, as the Kremlin is telling them. So for sure, this is going to have a, a deep political impact for the future that no one is aware right now. Russia is an enigma; it's a, a a mystery. Yes, I think Churchill once said. So we'll see how things will play out. But how do you see the situation, Armis? What's your analysis?
1: Well, I do very much agree with you that it's an enigma, and it's um, really hard to to make assessments because everything can be deception, right? There's even the claim, as Ivan mentioned earlier. That this thing was just staged by Putin to test other generals and elites whether they would remain on his side, but for that part I would say that this goes too far because what yeah. we can say definitely is that this move from Prigozhin and this move from Wagner certainly hurted not only the reputation of Russia but overall has massive negative consequences on Russia's foreign and uh, in- internal political landscape so any suggestion that this was something that the Russian state just did to test something I think those suggestions are wrong and this was a very real threat for the Russian military and Putin
0: yeah I think I I also heard this theory that uh that there was a a move to move the Wagner troops closer to Kiev right because they moved all the way north and then to the to the west uh, closer to Belarus. I think some of them are, are stationed right now. So they, there was these theories in Twitter saying that, yeah, this was a master plan to move the troops closer to, to Kiev, so to attempt another attack. But it's the same as you're saying. I don't think that uh, anyone would, would consider to do this such a dramatic thing just to move some troops around the ground. And then the the political impact and the, um, I don't know, the the way that, that Putin, re- I think he took a plane and flew outside of, of Moscow to St. Petersburg or something like that. So I mean, the guy looks weak right now, and I don't know, Ivan, if you're uh, in contact with people in Russia, how do Russian citizens are looking at this attempted coup d'état?
2: There is like two uh, groups of people who are kind of panicking, who were panicking, who were buying tickets with overpriced tickets to go away from Russia, as always, Um, and another group of people who are just as normal. As a normal uh, Russian uh, move is not, not to care, do not care about anything, and just will see what will happen, because not much is depending on on them. So yeah, this like apathy, uh, which is very strong in uh, in Russian people right now, was uh, predominant at that in, in these days. That the people are excluded from the political uh, map of the Russian right now, and uh, they are just waiting for decisions coming from the capital?
0: I think I have five things that I, I could say are uh, like my intakes, my lessons learned from this rebellion. And I think the first one is that we are seeing how this rebellion illustrates perfectly the perils of a venture capital foreign policy, right? So when we outsource uh, key tasks to, to the private sector actors outside normal chains of command, they, there can be problems, right? Because when, when the leader, when putting his strong, this approach works. Uh, to a point but when when the leader is not, when he's weak, these things can spin out of control. Putin has created a monster that threatens the very foundations of his security services-based regime. So that can possibly scope him out of power, as this attempt to coup d'etat could have done.
1: What I think is also interesting about this point is that there are 50 paramilitary groups in Russia or private military companies. So that's really a a massive scale we have here and a, a massive risk that Putin has Created for himself in the in the past years, so really an interesting thing to look at. But please go ahead. Yeah, no, absolutely, Aramis And, and if Prigozhin
0: does not pay a price for this, I think the lesson is that uh, you can go against the Kremlin and not have to pay the consequences. So that is why I think that this guy is, is a dead man. I mean, I think his days are counted. I don't think that Putin will forgive uh, this treason. He, he called him out as a as a traitor on national TV, and now he's uh, getting a sweet deal out of the country. I mean. No way this is going to last for a long time. So I don't know. I think that also another point I want to mention is that in the mutinous aftermath, uh, Russian soldiers will now face uh, a crisis of of trust. If Wagner troops are integrated into the broader Russian military and then these units are mixed, where does the loyalty stand for? I mean, we've seen that the the contractor's loyalty goes with who pays the, the heaviest price. So if that thing changes, if they are integrated into the army, Are they fighting for the Russian flag? Are they fighting for profit? So I think that's going to have some impact in the maybe psychological or the human-to-human relation among the forces. And when you're fighting a war, I think that's essential. So that's the second one. The third one I wanted to mention is uh, something that I I previously uh, said a little bit, that when you strike against the king, you got to go all the way and kill him. So in the surface, I think this can see that it's a victory for Putin, but I think that it's clear that his regime is weakened, both by the fact that it happened and the, and the way that the, the negotiations uh were not a, a physical demonstration of power, rather like maybe backstage uh, talks. And it was not even Putin that, that did them. It was Lukashenko. So I think that here there's a clear uh, hit to Putin's legitimacy, and I think that's going to have a political consequences on him. And another thing I wanted to mention is that if Wagner is going to be in, uh, integrated into the Russian army, there is the, the, um, there's the the there's thing happening in, in, in other parts of the world, such as Africa, right? I'm talking about uh, Mali, Central African Republic, Libya, and Sudan. where well, There's Wagner Group settled. So if, if uh, now the Russian army, if Wagner belongs to the Russian army, do we, does this mean that Russia has uh, foreign troops in other parts of the world? I think that's going to be interesting to see. Uh, one thing that I also heard is that maybe Pregosian in the future will try to move from Belarus to somewhere in, in in Africa, where he might be uh, safer, and I think this is a a, a topic that we can uh, maybe analyze in the future in in an event how maybe Wagner's dissolution will impact Africa if that happens.
1: Ivan, what do you think of Alexander Lukashenko, the Belarusian president who broke this deal? What's his role in all of this?
2: Lukashenko and Wagner, and they and they uh, they are common and shared interest in uh, Africa. Because Belarus is producing these heavy-duty trucks, which uh, can be used in the uh, mines, and uh, Wagner, I would say, very successful commercial project in in um, Central African Republic to mine um, fossil fuels and uh, diamonds. Um, this is the very uh, profitable symbiosis, which I believe. Um, World community should be uh, aware. And uh, they will sanction these uh, companies, but also I think they will have to do it in better, uh, they will have to do better job because we'll, we will see that the African region will be really extracted.
1: Yeah, on the other side, it's hard to sanction those companies because Wagner, in theory, is, is this private military company and they have their mines and everything in Africa but they have all those sub-companies. And as soon as you sanction one company, they just found one more and they try to go under the radar. So it's always a a tough game to catch up with all those uh, new companies. What I wanted to say is um, a little counterbalancing to what Fabio has mentioned, that Putin was weakened and that he may be on the brink of losing his power in general. I think that it is not so clear at the moment. It may happen, but it also may not happen because what we all know about authoritarian regimes is that if they crumble, they crumble very quickly and it can happen within a day, basically. Also, if we look at Russia, it can happen really quickly. We know that. But there's also other cases where authoritarian regimes go through major crises and they still manage to survive. And um, the example that I prepared here is um, Venezuela, Fabio, you probably know more about it than I do, but um, in 2020 there were the presidential elections in Venezuela, and um, Nicolas Maduro, who won those, ele- who said he won those elections, was not accepted by um, not only the Venezuelan National Assembly but also the international community in general, and then. Um, the head of the National Assembly, Juan Guaidó, declared himself as the interim president of Venezuela, kind of the whole Western world and many Latin American countries, including Brazil. They did not recognize Maduro and there were massive protests against Maduro. And the U.S. even offered a reward of up to $15 million for information related to Nicolas Maduro, which may lead to his seizure. So there was this massive chaos in Venezuela and everyone thought that Maduro will have to step down within a couple of months or many commentators would predict that. But in the end, his regime survived. He's still there. He's still in power. And there are countries and regimes even reestablishing their diplomatic ties to Venezuela now. And um, if we look at history, we we see so many examples of that where, Authoritarian leaders just managed to get through hard times. And um, I would even say that Putin is arguably in a better situation than Maduro has been in 2020. There is no democratically elected opposition leader that questions Putin's authority. We don't have the international community coming out and trying to support him. We don't have massive protests at the moment. So... I think we have to be very careful with those predictions while not saying that Putin is absolutely powerful and he cannot be there's absolutely no way that he could he would lose power but um especially after the Wagner mutiny I think that people overestimate the the cracks in the Russian regime
0: yeah maybe maybe those those um Thoughts are are um, exaggerated, but I mean, if th- there are cracks, I mean, it's clear that there are cracks, and I think it's a sure. matter of sure. of time. I think a, a system like that is is uh, unsustainable, and and trying to hold on power, fighting a war that's that you're clearly not winning, I think that can have some serious impacts. But as you said, like Russia works in mysterious ways. So who knows if Putin might seem even more reinforced after this than ever. And it it comes to my mind, the earthquake in Turkey that everyone thought was going to bring Erdogan down, it didn't.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: So who knows? Who knows? But (laughs) armies. I think just maybe to finish this uh, first block, I wanted to jump into into how maybe this will change the situation in Ukraine. And long story short, at least from my intake, I don't think it's going to have a deep impact as of right now, I think that most of the troops that were, uh, as I said, that that were moved to, to towards yeah. Moscow, they were not in the front. And then all of these uh, obstacles that that Ukrainian forces have to to stand against the landmines, fortifications, they're still unchanged. And I know that there was some some uh, movements, but I don't think that Ukraine got significant uh, proportions of territory back. I think maybe there's going to be a, a deep psychological um, effect of this. Uh, m- my question still is how. Are the Wagner groups going to be reorganized? We're talking about the most, one of the most effective units that have been fighting against the Ukrainians with the most uh, experience in the territory. They, they were the ones that fought in Bakhmut, one of the, the deadliest and bloodiest uh, battles. So I think this is uh, still to be seen. I think it's hard for me to imagine Prigozhin still holding to this private army. So I, I am really interested in to see how Wagner is going to be restructured or integrated into the Russian army.
1: Yeah, it's hard to assess how powerful Wagner was in in the war. I mean, many of their soldiers were just gathered from prisons all over Russia and didn't have proper training and also died very quickly, tens of thousands of soldiers. But um, according to recent reports, up to 8,000 soldiers follow Prigozhin to Belarus. A lot of them fought in Ukraine. So their absence will certainly... Have an impact.
2: Well, uh, I would. I will just quickly add that um, Prigozhin uh, moved uh, his troops away from the front line uh, right after they captured Bakhmut. They passed this front line to Russian uh, Russian soldiers, Russian army. So, in fact, when they started their walk to Moscow, uh, they already were in their compounds away from the front line. Um, yeah, indeed, they we cannot uh, and we shouldn't expect uh, the return of uh, of Prigozhin to the front line. Probably he will hide in Belarus for, for, for good. Um, we'll see how it will affect um, the defense of uh, Russian army, because they build it a uh, a wide uh, line of protection and um, uh, I just hope that the Ukrainian army uh, will see their ways in this um, not not, uh, simple task to capture back their own territory
0: Well, guys, in this second blog, uh, I think we're going to focus a little bit more uh, regarding the Russian opposition in, inside the country. Despite of this rebellion against the Russian government, opposition and anti-war movements in Russia face tremendous challenges, right? Due to the oppressive nature of the regime, dissidents are targeted. They're often imprisoned and adding to the complexity of the situation, right? So while Ukraine's expresses dissatisfaction with uh, Putin's opponents and the Russia's anti-war movement, uh, there's this feeling that uh, the West might not be doing enough to combat the Kremlin in that line, right? So I think that this this dynamic resonates strongly in the West, uh, where it's crucial to exercise caution, not to antagonize all Russian citizens for this uh, unwanted war initiated by Putin and, and a specific elite. So I think that that comes to my mind. And uh, while it's essential to scrutinize those that support Russia's war efforts, it's equally important to, to delve deeper into and, and to comprehend why maybe the population backs these actions, right? So I think in this blog, we can ask about uh, what can the West still do to maybe uh, achieve a change within Russia, if, if that's even possible?
1: Yeah, and many of our listeners will probably have heard of the name Mikhail Khodorkovsky before. He used to be a powerful Russian oligarch and head of a huge Russian oil company called Yukos. And in 2003, he decided to go against Putin publicly and went into prison until 2013, marking the beginning of Putin's authoritarian turn, according to commentators. And a couple of months ago, Khodorkovsky, who lives in exile now, wrote a very interesting piece for the news outlet Politico. Fabio, can you tell us more about it? Well, Emerson, this
0: amazing article that you sent to me, uh, he pretty much argues uh, the two sides of the coin, right? So in in one side, he says that uh, Russian society will ultimately come tired of the war, that the impact on public attitudes uh, of this huge number of dead and killed soldiers will have a deep impact. So this isn't from one side, but he still says that this scenario is highly unlikely as the, the Kremlin notes its game and that they are paying a lot of money to the conscripts that they're taking into the battle, that their salaries, salaries are maybe seven to 10 times higher than, the, than what they could earn at home. And that the, people of, the, the families of the people that are dying, they're being paid as well, right? So I think that this uh, propaganda machine that the Kremlin has inside uh, Russia is, is way too strong, right? So that's the dilemma that we're facing here. I think it's clear that things are not developing as, as the Kremlin would like, as Putin would, Putin would like, and the rebellion is another example of this. But at the same time, this regime has uh, information control so
1: tightly. So that's the dilemma that we're facing here. So Ivan, what do you think about Khodorkovsky's statement?
2: Uh, well, yes, uh, Khodorkovsky and other famous uh, Russian oppositions in exile, uh, they right now think very hard about the future of Russia. I would say that they try to recreate Russia and maybe even build their own Russia abroad. Uh, in Brussels, actually, on June 12th, they made a summit, uh, Brussels summit of Russian opposition in exile, uh, where they met each other. Uh, it was it was an attempt to combine all the opposition forces together, uh, but still, uh, it's. Uh, there is a big fragmentation in Russian position. Uh, I think that uh, all these ideas that Russian position now can take over the power uh, or somehow like try to ruin the Putin's regime, it's kind of too 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 detached from the reality. Uh, we we appeared in the situation when uh, the Putin uh, Putin's system uh, basically pushed away all the um, legal attempts to take over the power uh, and all the oppositioners abroad, starting from the very beginning of Putin's administration, how Khodorkovsky was detached from the reality in the prison. Then he, Putin moved uh, his um, um, focus on the uh, Russian journalists. He, he just basically was killing them. Uh, right now, actually we saw that, Uh, after the war, many mild oppositioners, they started to be uh, persecuted. For example, ecological movements, or um, but right now, even the Greenpeace became uh, a non-desirable organization uh, as they call it in Russia. The whole field of political uh, independent movement is uh, cleaned by Russian Russian administration, presidential administration, and um, they try to grow their own Um, controlled movements which cannot function because they are not uh, bottom-up projects. They are purely just a muppet show.
1: But um, Khodorkovsky even says that um, the popularity of Putin went up due to the full-scale invasion and um, I believe that he bases this claim on the Levada Center, which is this famous last remaining independent institute in russia conducting huge opinion polls and this um, institute said that his ratings went from 60 70 percent to more than 80 percent after the start of the war should we really believe this data do you think that the popularity of putin in russia even increased after the war the same time uh, during this time
2: uh, during this period uh, around one million people left russia they, like, basically, they can be agree or they can be quiet and do not, like, participate in anything on this.
1: That's a fair point. But isn't there even a bigger, more fundamental problem with those research institutions? Right now,
2: all the sociological work, it should be scrutinized uh, heavily because, uh, first of all, during war, it's very hard to make um, independent research. And secondly, as I said, independent organizations are now facing
1: charges. So what's your opinion? What is the state of Putin's popularity in Russia?
2: Uh, I wouldn't say that everyone only supports like, uh, Putin or something. Like this Russian population right now is very affected by this apathy and um, the detachment from their um, political map. So you, you cannot imagine riots like right now is happening in, in France, uh, where any case can uh, cause a riot with the old (laughs) uh, full-scale mini-civil war on the streets, this cannot be imagined in Russia any day.
0: Apparently, there's nothing happening in the streets, and I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are not uh, for this invasion and all of the consequences that are coming, and I understand that due to the nature of this repressive regime, you can never see thousands of people gathering, as they're most likely going to be met with bullets, right? probably no chance of, of victory whatsoever. And I think that everyone understands that. But my, I, I wanted to ask about you that because I don't think that Putin can go and just shoot uh, thousands of people gathering in the, in the squares. So how does the system manage to abort people to even gathering to that level? Well,
2: um, I believe there are three stages on the way to this current situation. First stage was in the early 2000s when the... Um, political movements, public policy on streets, uh, it was um, possible. And people were governing until when uh, Putin uh, removed the ability to choose uh, your own governor in the region uh, and governors, the heads of uh, regions, started to be appointed by Moscow. This was first major uh, downsize of the political autonomy in Russia and the major hit to the federalism itself.
1: Just as context for our listeners, this first phase occurred in 2004 when a school in Russia was hit by a major terrorist attack and this gave Putin the leverage to implement many political reforms in the aftermath of it, which centralized the power in Russia and weakened the power of the opposition.
2: The second big change was after 2012 when there was like a switch between Medvedev and putin putin again became a president uh, he started to introduce new laws uh, and the state duma uh, russian parliament uh, started to basically uh, to copy <laughs> and paste ideas which comes or putin itself. for example to gather uh, on a square with some like a uh, Posters, you will have to apply for this to a local municipality ahead of time uh, with the list of participants. Uh, Then, also, the um, NGOs started to be persecuted if they do, if they receive foreign funds uh, or any other like funds which uh, can be like claimed as to be foreign. Uh, After that, they cannot do anything about this. They started to call it this law foreign agent and they started to just develop these ideas about uh, foreign agents. Uh, And this law became a framework for uh, all the oppressions against uh, structural uh, political movements. So the organizations became uh, the targets and all the work under this organization uh, just struggling with the bureaucratic uh, procedures without which they cannot operate. Then they started to increase uh, felonies to individuals. For example, they, after the Pussy Riot, made a concert in the church, they published a law about shame of religion beliefs or something like this. So if you basically say something bad about the church or other religions, but most of the cases were about the Russian Orthodox Church, you can face charges First time in uh, fines and second time in prisons. So you know this guy who was playing Pokemon Go, in the, uh, who was playing Pokemon Go in the church, he was prisoned. All these very famous uh, cases started to frighten people. Then uh, they just moved to persecute people who started to comment online, who was posting some memes. They published a law about this: do not offense. Uh, do, do not be offensive to the current like pol- politicians. All these like cases were lighted by the public media, so everyone was like aware about this. People started to introduce self-censorship, and all in all, we see the COVID happened and all the uh, digitalizing uh, of the state services. And even though like after two years or three years after COVID, they were still prosecuting people because of gathering on the streets. They were prosecuting them as like a violation of pandemic rules. Mm-hmm. So publicly, they say that, yeah, there is no like any more pandemic, but you are still being persecuted as violation of pandemic rules if you gather like, uh, on the protest. All these cases, more and more and more, they were just showing people that If you disagree with the current political regime, you have to leave, which many people uh, did last year.
1: Ivan, you highlighted the realistic perspective so far. Russia as a country of people reluctant to change politics and Russia as a country where any form of public dissent has been illegalized gradually. But I would like to get back to Khodorkovsky. He agrees that, yes, this is the situation in Russia at the moment, but he also says that it's wrong to just sit on the sidelines, antagonize all Russians and say the game is over. And I think this raises a highly important point here. There is so much that can be done to change the political situation in Russia, but it feels like Western states have stopped trying. Yes, Putin made it much harder to protest, to get alternative news sources. But the war has put the regime into a highly vulnerable position and as Khodorkovsky said, ultimately people will become tired of the war. And when this tipping point is reached, the Russians will either turn to another Putin or they make a similar democratic approach like they did at the beginning of the 1990s. And don't get me wrong, at the moment, even if Putin is gone, Russians would likely turn to someone very similar to him. But if the West strengthened its efforts, if Western leaders started to cooperate with Russia's exile opposition, or if the West gave Russian citizens fleeing from war the chance to live and work in the EU. if. Censorship circumvention tools were distributed among the local Russian opposition. If we gave Russians access to factual information outside of their propaganda news outlets, then things could gradually change. And this approach is nothing new to the West. Such efforts were in place. Um, historically, in many cases, for example, during the Arab Spring, and they are still applied today, we would just need to intensify them. Now would it be problematic if we used those tools excessively? Of course, I think we should view the role of the West during the Arab Spring critically. But I think that we should definitely intensify this discussion in the context of Russia instead of antagonizing all russians and one final thought here let's just briefly consider that this war is only possible because russians are being constantly fed with propaganda propaganda that says that the west is their biggest enemy that the west tries to destroy russia and this confrontation between russia and the west can only be resolved sustainably if we provide an alternative to this propaganda, because if Russians will forever continue to think that the West is the biggest enemy of Russia, then those attacks on the West will only continue. a Good idea about interventions, Fabio. What do you think? Is the West doing enough to influence the Russian leadership? I would say
0: so far. I mean, economic sanctions, right? Economic warfare is what it's often thought of as that tool that's not literally violent to maybe try to change uh, oppressive regime's behavior. But at the same time, uh, we still need to be really uh, critical about them, because uh, at least now with the the ones in Russia, I mean, their main point is to stop Putin's uh, ability to finance his war machine. And that has not been successful after a year. I mean, it's true that this is a long term uh, objective, a long term uh, tool. But at the same time, I think that that same fact makes uh, Russia, it allows Russia to adapt its economy and go around sanctions, right? So I think that, yes, they impact uh, Russia's uh, ability to finance its war in Ukraine and and its ability to maybe get certain technological components for specific uh, machines, specific um, uh, weapons. But at the same time, I don't think that they're the ultimate weapon to maybe change uh, dictators' behavior. It's true that maybe if you put sanctions in, in elites, you can also try to maybe uh, shift the narrative and, and make them angry in such a way that maybe they will try to to push uh, the leaders into other direction. But at the same time, I think that it doesn't cover the whole thing, right? And then that's there's a dilemma of, of uh, sanctions that affect the civilian population. And, and you want that in a way. You do want the, the civilian population to be angry against the regime and maybe try to uh, oppose it or, or uh, go out in the streets against it. But as we've seen, it's not the case in, in Russia. And I put you guys example of of Iraq. Iraq had a 10 uh, year long uh, re- uh, sanction regime, and it did not take uh, Saddam Hussein out of power, right? So I think similar thing we, we might see here uh, with Russia. I mean, they have found ways to go around sanctions and so far they have not been as successful as, as the West wanted to. But what do you guys think? Do you think that uh, sanctions can actually help to to change uh, Putin's murderous behavior?
1: I think economic sanctions perfectly highlight the, the point that I've just made, because economic sanctions, just the, the aim of them is to also make the country revolt against its leaders because of the depriving economic situation. But if you do not also intervene in the information sphere, then those people will not revolt or likely not revolt against the leaders because the leaders will come up with something that they say, okay, there's a problem, but some it's someone else's fault. It's not our fault. And if the West is only intervening through economic matters, then this whole ideational ideological aspect is left out and i think that's the the major shortcoming in the western approach towards russia at the moment because there's just this there's just economic sanctions and apart from that the russian population gets the russian propaganda so how are they supposed to revolt against the regime in in the end it's always a question of purpose right what is the purpose of the sanctions is the purpose cause a revolt against the leaders is the purpose to call a rift in the elite or is the purpose to just um, retaliate against the actions of russia and to show other nations that their actions are not appropriate but even i would be interested in your perspective now in the perspective of your surroundings in russia how are they reacting to the sanctions i
2: have some friends uh, who actually right now not benefiting from the sanctions, but they started for example their own businesses to uh, basically replace the import and also use the situation where the foreign brands uh, put out from Russia pull out from Russia and uh, their ability to prosecute counterfacts uh, is right now limited uh, they can sell their like clothes for example, which has like the same logos so we'll see again that uh, the not all like population right now is angry about this. Some of them is benefiting economic sanctions right now about the finances uh, and money flow is actually heavily affected general public rather than uh, state actors.
0: All right, guys, uh, I think we're going, uh, we're reaching the end of our episode. And I just wanted to maybe ask you, uh, I'm, I'm going to give just a couple ideas of my general uh, summary of this whole situation and how things are developing in Russia. And then I'm going to ask you the same. And just to start to kick it off, I think, and that's just my opinion, I do think that this is the beginning of the end of Putin's regime. I think that uh, something that we've never seen since he got to power is someone openly defined his power in such a way and it's, uh, I don't want to say it's a shame, because of course it's not, it's, it's a loss of life, it's violence, you should, we should never glorify that. But it's true that this uh, open mutiny uh, ended in, in a little undramatic and, and uh, depressing way. I mean, I thought that honestly, an open confrontation in Moscow would definitely have a deep impact in his regime and maybe the end of the war. I don't know. But we are starting to see that there's way too many different opinions in this war, I think that uh, it's clear that now the whole country is aware of what's happening. Well, maybe not to all the extent of it, but just the fact that Putin made a an, uh, TV announcement about what's happening me- means that every Russian is aware that there's some trouble in the capital and maybe things are not going as as Putin wants. And I think that now what we have to see and follow is it's, uh, Ukraine's uh, victories in the battlefield if they come. And I think that will start to put even more pressure on maybe a potential deal in the coming year. I think that the potential victory of the Republicans in the White House next year as well might also add some pressure to the Ukrainian side to try to finish or try to conquer as much territory as possible to have more leverage on a potential deal uh, next year. I think that's one thing that we'll have to see and we'll have to, to follow. But definitely this adds up to the pressure and does not play in the favor of the Kremlin. Uh, But what about yourself, Armis? How do you see your whole assessment of the situation?
1: I'm not so optimistic about Putin falling, as I've already indicated before, because over the past two decades, this guy has invested everything into keeping his power, everything into centralizing um, the Russian state. And I think that a lot has to happen for him to fall. We've seen that authoritarian regimes can be very resilient. And I believe that um, the Russian state is uh, resilient towards the threats that it has previously uh, encountered. But on the other hand, of course, there is the potentiality that the regime will eventually crumble within the next months, years, who knows. And I think from a Western perspective, there is much more potential to inflict this change, for example, by being more tough about their economic sanctions. But we're also seeing limited success where in certain fields, China, even China, has stopped importing Russian goods. So if the West is more serious about their economic sanctions, if they're adding pressure on the information sphere, so let's talk about um, censorship, circumvention tools, and other means then I think that the likelihood of the Putin regime falling increases. And on the other hand, the likelihood increases that the subsequent leader of Russia has a more pro-Western approach. But as things stand currently, if Putin was to fall, I would be highly pessimistic whether the subsequent leader following Putin would be pro-Western, so... Yeah, I think we should also reconsider whether we want Putin to fall because he has been relatively reliable when it comes, for example, to nuclear weapons. And uh, this might, may change if there was another guy in power in Russia. So, yeah, in short, a, a complex situation. But what do you think, Ivan?
2: Uh, I would say that Russian people will have to feel again that they can influence the Russian politics. And this will be the major goal. Of uh, European or American like po- politicians to think about uh, how they can restore the belief and the and the trust about people to 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 itself. So that people have to uh, be sure that their actions can change something. This is will be the main mission. Will it be done through again like introducing so called um, voices of freedom or? Um, re- uh, uh, Freedom Radio or something like that It will be like maybe a different thing But anyway, uh, people should not be Scared about their future And they will have to be sure That they will be kind of supported If there will be a, a Moment of crack Unfortunately, I'm not sure What will be the the future Of of Putin's regime Definitely it will end with the death Of Putin, it will be a different system We'll see, uh, right now I would say I would say the phrase which usually Russian migrants say to each other uh, when they say goodbye. Russia, Russia will be free.
0: Yeah, I like that. I think that's the, the best way to end this, this episode with that same expression. I, I honestly hope for a, a free Russia one that uh, where people actually can express what they think and they're not uh, shot on impression just by the mere fact of criticizing uh, wrong decision, right? So how do you say that again, Ivan? How do you say that in Russian?
2: Russia will be
0: free. Well, i'm not even gonna try i'm not even gonna try <laughs> <laughs> anyways guys thank you so very much for listening to us this has been a really interesting episode thanks so much ivan for coming to, to the podcast it's been uh some time that we've been discussing to record this episode and in the middle of it we had this attempt to cook the task so we had to re- reshuffle the, the information and and change the, the whole narrative but thanks so much for your time and Armies, the same goes to you. And uh, Well, guys, for anything uh, you might uh, want to delve into international relations or geopolitics, you know where to find us.